Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Today we're going to begin with a reading from Psalm 139, and in fact, this will be the focus of the sermon as well. Before we go to the scripture, though, there's a prayer for illumination where we ask God to help us in our reading and understanding of scripture. So I invite you to join with me in that prayer. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Amen. As we read the psalm today, Scarlett is going to lead us in reading it, but we're going to read it responsively. And so Scarlett will read the regular font. Many of you know this pattern. Uh, Scarlett will read the regular font, and then we'll all join together in the bold font, the black font. Uh, All right, go ahead, Scarlett. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind me and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. See if there is any wicked in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Thank you, Scarlett. We'll continue reading from Matthew chapter 13. Uh, You heard Sarah allude to this text when she was doing the children's time. It's another little wonderful parable by Jesus about uh, seeds and planting and sowing. And so I invite you to hear these words of Scripture. He being Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field, but while everybody was asleep, an enemy came weeds among the wheat and then went away so when the plants came up and bore grain then the weeds appeared as well the slaves of the householder came and they said to him master did you not sow good seed in your field where then did these weeds come from he answered an enemy has done this the slave said to them do you want us to go and gather them he replied no for in gathering the weeds you would uproot the wheat along with them Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. His disciples approached him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field of the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will collect out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. 
This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Very good. I love that text from Matthew 13. I preached one sort of similar to that last week, and I think I preached that one about a year ago, and so I'm going to let you meditate on that parable about the weeds and the wheat. Lots of good lessons there, but for the sermon today, we're going to focus on the psalm, Psalm 139, 1 through 12, 23 through 24. Will you join me in a spirit of prayer? Holy God, we have gratitude in our hearts today. What a joy to look around this room at smiling and happy and welcoming faces. What a joy to celebrate your spirit among us, your presence within us. What a joy to be reminded that we are called and welcomed into your holy house, set apart that we might be in communion with you and in fellowship with one another. God, as we read these ancient texts, these sacred words, we know your spirit is within the writing and within the reading and now the hearing. And may your spirit be at work in our hearts in this moment. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good game of peekaboo? Right? You can see the toughest, crustiest old grandpa, the most reserved and intellectual, thoughtful grandmother. They can turn to a puddle with a small child willing to play peekaboo. We're just learning that game at our house these days. It gets a laugh and a smile occasionally, and so we, of course, do it over and over and over again. Peekaboo, of course, eventually graduates into higher forms, hide-and-seek. I suppose hide-and-seek is as old as time. It's a game that doesn't require any technology or tools. It just requires at least two people. One person's it. They cover their face. They count to ten. Someone else runs and hides, and you try to find them, and Children, of course, all of you have played this game countless times over and over again. Hide-and-seek, I guess, could be uh, graduated even more, maybe transformed into the playground game of tag. With tag, there's not quite as much hiding, but it's still sort of the same principle. Someone is trying to find and catch someone else. More advanced levels might be laser tag at the arcade or or even paintball on an open course. Hide-and-seek, catch, and find. There's something sort of alluring about this idea of of distancing ourselves from others, making ourselves hard to find, hard to catch, and at the same time, the, the thrill and the joy and the excitement of finding and catching someone else. Hide and seek. Peekaboo. Stay away. Run and tag. These are principles that, of course, apply to children and their games, but you can see how they could be translated pretty easily to our spiritual lives. When I say hide-and-seek is as old as time, I mean that partly in a a biblical sense. If you read from Genesis 1 and 2 when Adam and Eve began to grow aware of who they are and, and how they are, how they're different from one another, how they're different from God, what's the first thing they do? Well, they hide themselves. They both hide themselves with clothing and they hide themselves in the garden. And there's this wonderful scene where, where God goes to look for them and says, where, where have you gone? Do you think you can hide from me? In his book on the, the Psalms, I've, I've shared with you about this book before. We've even studied a little bit. David Taylor, Open and Afraid. He says this is, this is sort of the human condition writ large, right? That all of us have something in us, some secret about us, that we would rather hide from others and even from God. Each of us in this room this morning, those who are worshiping online, there's something in our gut, in our heart, in our very being, past traumatic experiences, shame for our shortcomings and failures, senses of of prejudice and anger and judgment toward other people, 
a temper that we carry in us, acts of of self-indulgence that do harm. Every one of us in this room this morning, we're carrying something in us, some secret that we would like to hide from others and preferably to hide from God. The challenge with that, of course, as long as we're hiding, then we're also keeping God's goodness and God's grace and God's love, God's healing at bay. And sometimes we need help, we need language, we need opportunities to name those secrets, to name that brokenness and that fear, and to get it out in the open so that God can draw near to us and that we can draw near to God. I try, of course, a few times a year to preach on the Psalms. We've done studies on the Psalms. We've even had a season where we tried to read all the Psalms together. The Psalms are an antidote to this sort of spiritual darkness that much of us prefer, that many of us prefer. If you read the Psalms 1 to 150, if you read them daily, if you read them regularly, what you find in the Psalms is a sort of mirror of the human condition. The Psalms celebrate us when we're at our best, when we're most faithful, when we're following God, when we're excited to praise and worship. But the Psalms also name the ways in which we fall short. The Psalms do a wonderful job of naming our anger and our frustration and our fear. There are some Psalms that that sound downright mean. Because the psalmist is so upset about something that's happened to them. And so as we read the psalms, as we use them in our prayer life, as we use them in worship on Sundays, we're allowing the psalms' words to become our own prayers. And that would certainly be the hope today as we read Psalm 139. It's printed on the inside of your bulletin. It's printed on the outside of your bulletin. Of course, you could have it in your own Bible. You could screenshot it on your phone real easily. Psalm 139 is one of those psalms that ought to be before us, that ought to be so familiar to us that we can hear echoes of it in our own prayers. At least that's the hope today. So let's look a little bit at Psalm 139. The first six verses are all about this personal relationship with God, our personal Lord and Savior. I hope as you heard Scarlett reading them, as you were sharing with her in the reading, that you heard these these key words repeating. The word that's repeated over and over again here is know. Oh God, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I get up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path, you are acquainted with all my ways. Even when a word is on my tongue, you already know it. You are in front of me and behind me, your hand is upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high that I cannot attain it. Now, I'll confess to you that sometimes when I hear the phrase, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, sometimes I worry that 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 language sort of minimizes Jesus. It sort of makes Jesus into just an individual Lord and Savior. When we talk about Jesus that way, we forget about the other things that Jesus did and taught. But maybe here's an instance in Psalm 139 where that sort of language really does apply my personal Lord and Savior. Listen to the way the psalmist describes their relationship with God. There is nothing about me, the psalmist says, and invites us to say as well, there is nothing about me that God does not already know. There is no secret life between me and God. There's nothing in my heart that's hidden from God. There's nothing in my thoughts. There's no word on my mouth. There's nowhere that I can, there's nothing about me that God does not already know. The psalmist here describes a profoundly personal, maybe a little bit intimidating relationship with God. Imagine if all of your secrets, all of the secrets you think you have, 
if they were brought to light in God's presence. All the good things about you, the things you could celebrate, the things that concern you, your worries, your anxieties, your fears, your brokenness, God knows it all. And God knows it all for each one of us. This psalm is meant to be prayed and read by each one of us, each person. It's a personal word. God knows me. And God knows you. You may remember uh, this fellow, this old friend. His name is Martin Buber, B-U-B-E-R, Martin Buber. Martin Buber was a Jewish uh, philosopher from the last century. Uh, He wrote a number of key texts, but the one that's most famous and most well-known that many of you maybe have read or seen quotes from is a text called I and Thou. Now, Buber is Jewish, so he's, he's kind of working from an Old Testament theology, an Old Testament framework, but, but what he does in this book, I and Thou, it, it's so common to us, the way he describes the way in which we relate to the world, that, that almost anyone can appreciate what he's up to. And his basic argument goes like this, that, that there's a temptation when we engage with the world when we engage with other people, when we engage with inanimate objects, when we engage with plants and animals, when we engage with the world, to treat everything as an it. Everything is an it. And if everything is an it, then this is an object. It is an object. It is an object that we can study, that we can analyze, that we can use for our benefit, we can experience it as we so choose. And we keep everything at a safe distance, and we use it when we want to. But Buber argues that that way of living, boy, that really does an injustice to the way in which God designed us. God did not design us to be a bunch of machines walking around with other its. Instead, the way God designed us was to see everything else as a thou, or in our language, a you. That the things around us, the people especially, but even maybe some of the inanimate objects, certainly our pets, right? They aren't just its, they are thou's. And that they are filled with relational capability and they, and they long to know us fully and, and we're so much more uh, fully as God designed us when we know them fully. So Buber argues that we ought to not be I-it sort of people, we ought to be I-thou sort of people, the relational component. And of course he says the greatest thou of all, the big T-thou, is God's own self. God is not an it. God is not like the sun or the moon or the stars or a tree. God is not an object to be studied or to be analyzed. God is a thou, a you. And this is God's way of being in the world. God longs to be in relationship with us. And God wants to break down that barrier, that distance that we so often create. And then when we accept God in this way, when we live in this sort of relationship with God, boy, our our lives are so much more rich, so much more full I-thou, I-thou relationships with one another, I-thou relationship with God, our Creator and Redeemer. This is sort of what Psalm 139 is saying. God isn't just this creative power, this force that's out there in the world somewhere to be studied and analyzed. God knows me. God knows you. There's nothing about you that's unknown to God. God is a thou, a you, drawn in close relationship together. So those are the first few verses of Psalm 139, 1 through 6. The next few verses go in a slightly different direction. Uh, For many of us, my age, my age and younger, maybe a little bit older, it was the movie Remember the Titans, 20, 25 years ago, Remember the Titans, the Disney movie. For many of us, that reacquainted or introduced the song to us 
Ain't No Mountain High Enough, right? Marvin Gaye, back in the 60s, you know this song. Ain't no mountain high enough. You sing with me. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me. Y'all didn't know I was going to do that, did you? <laughs> ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Of course, the football team would sing this together in the locker room as they were getting to know one another and building relationships together. They even sang it together on the field. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough. When I hear that tune, when I hear those words over and over again, surely they were written with Psalm 139 in mind. The first few verses say, God knows everything about me, everything about me. There's nowhere that that I can go, nothing I can do that God doesn't already know. And then the next few verses say, I know this to be true because God is everywhere. God is everywhere. There ain't no mountain high enough. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go all the way to heaven, if I go as high as possible, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, the underworld, you're there. If I go out on the wings of the morning to the edge of the sea, you're there. Wherever I go, you are there. And then my favorite part. Even the darkness, when it covers me, is like light to you. There is no darkness that is too dark for you, for the night is as bright as the day to you. These are, for the psalmist, words of comfort. The reason that there's nothing hidden between I and God, between you and God, is because God is everywhere that we might go. From our highest points, from our very best days when everything is good and perfect, to our lowest points, our biggest losses, our greatest defeats, As far as we might think we can go, as far as we might go to distance ourselves from God, God is already there. The psalmist says, on our very worst day, in our darkest moment, even that darkness is like light to God, because God is already there. Now, when we read these Old Testament texts, we often remember the ancient cosmology that people had in mind. Certainly these were not modern people. They didn't understand the world in the way we do, a scientific way. They didn't understand space and sea and the underground. But, but the images that they had in mind still apply pretty well for us. Here's a, a quick drawing of the ancient Israelite cosmology. The firmament, the heavens, high above us, as high as you could look, that's where God is, of course. God is up high, right? God is in the heavens. You come down to the created order, the earthly order, this place where we live, and then you go below this order, out into the depths of the ocean or underneath the ground, down toward the middle of the earth. This is Sheol. This is hell. This is the place of torment and destruction and fear and darkness. Now, many people think that God's presence is only up in the firmament. God is up in heaven, and you have to look up and you have to worship God up there. But the psalmist says, not so. I could go to heaven and God would be there. I could go as far to the edge of the sea, and yet God is still there. In fact, I could go under the ground into the depths of the sea, into the dark of the ocean, and God would still be there. What the psalmist says here in 139 is a pretty remarkable claim. It's not just that God is there, or that God is here, but in fact, God is everywhere. There's nowhere that I can go that God's presence is not already there, including in my very best moments but also in my very worst moments. 
Now, you probably don't think about the world in this way anymore. We understand space. We understand that space is ever-expanding. We know a little bit about the moon and space travel. We know about the firmament. We know about the clouds and the rain. We know about the created order that we live in. We know about the underbelly of earth. We know about the ways in which the core of the earth is organized. We know a whole lot more, scientifically speaking. But boy, does that image still resonate. At my highest moments and at my lowest moments, God is still there. I pull up these data points for you every few months because I think they're so pressing and as a pastor they're so concerning. This one comes from February, just a few months ago. Share of adults reporting systems of anxiety or depression. All adults average 32%. Young adults, almost 50%. Middle age, 25 to 49, 38%. 50 to 64, 29%. 65 plus 20%. Some doctors have described the current state of mental health as an epidemic that in this room, a third of us are dealing with symptoms of depression or anxiety, fear, worry, and even more so with our young adults. So when the psalmist says, I could go down to hell, to Sheol, and you are still with me, this is what the psalmist means, right? Even when I feel like I'm in total darkness, even when I feel like I'm totally alone, even when I feel like I've totally been forgotten, when no one else understands me, you are still with me. It's my joy to remind you of that this morning. If you find yourself in this group, if you find yourself struggling with those feelings, if you feel like it's darkness surrounding you, if you feel like you're alone, if you feel like you've been, garden, been forgotten, I can assure you that sometimes our feelings lie to us. Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's true. The darkness is as light to you, says the psalmist. There is no place too dark for God. There is no person too far gone for God. None of us in this room can do something so bad, can distance ourselves from God entirely. This is what the psalmist means. You are with me wherever I go, no matter how I feel. On my best days, but also on my worst days. Timothy Keller, you may have seen in the news um, or on social media, uh, Timothy Keller is a pastor in New York City, was a pastor in New York City. His church is called Redeemer. Uh, he's a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, he died last month uh, in his early 70s. Uh, the best way to communicate it, Timothy Keller is kind of to Presbyterians uh, what Adam Hamilton is to Methodists, right? So he writes lots of curriculum. He speaks at lots of conferences. He's just super well-known. He's very eloquent. He's very thoughtful. Uh, many people, even those outside of the Presbyterian denomination, have found Keller to be a helpful guide, uh, particularly in this kind of contemporary world as he ministers in New York City. Uh, one, of, one of his books is about marriage, um, and he's talking in that book about marriage, about intimate relationships and the challenges of intimate relationships. And he has this wonderful quote that I think applies well here to Psalm 139. I want you to hear these words. He says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Loved and not known. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's what it means to be loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from our pretense, it humbles us from our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Well, I really like the way Keller phrases that. It's sort of Psalm 139 in his own words, right? To be loved and not known, to be known and not loved, what we in fact need is both. To be fully known and to be fully loved. 
That's what Psalm 139 says. There's no secret and there's no place you can go. There's no secret too bad and there's no distance you could travel that would keep God's presence from you. You are fully known and fully loved. No game of hide and seek, just God's thou presence, God's holy presence coming to you, seeking to you, caring for you over and over again. I hope you hear those words of comfort and encouragement today. I invite you to continue to pray Psalm 139 to learn those words for yourself. Where can I go that God is not already there? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for your ever-seeking presence, for your continuous outpouring of grace. God, as we worship this morning, we are reminded that we are broken people in so many ways. And God, we confess that we have often carried our brokenness within us. We have hid it from ourselves. We've hid it from our friends and family. We've even tried to hide from you. God, may we today, as the psalmist says, see ourselves as you see us. There are no secrets, God. No games, no hide and seek. Simply our desire to know, to be known, to be loved, to be forgiven, and to be healed. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, as we stand... Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.